We're pregnant. Bro, do you even live? I can't eat another one bite. One is usually bigger than the other. It tastes awful. It hurt a Wait, bit. Why is it leaking? Did you Whoa, hear that? That, that was not awful. there yesterday. I have a second of It's totally my natural color. That's supposed to look like that? Don't worry. That was deadly. I'm Terrell. And I'm Iris. Welcome to Health Science for the rest of us, a podcast where we take a super practical look at the body, its shenanigans, and the world of fascinating ways we try and keep it healthy. This definitely won't replace a trip to your doctor's office, but it may help you make heads or tails of how to live in your body better. More important than that, this podcast will help you look like a total badass at your next Facebook debate. You did it again. We can edit that later. Let's Let's do do this. this. Have you ever been stung by a hornet? If so, it probably hurt. Bad. Maybe it hurt so bad that you remember it like it was yesterday. If that's the case, imagine for a moment that you're sitting with someone who has never been stung by a hornet. What would you say to them to help them understand what the pain was like? If you happen to be Jonathan O. Schmidt, a science researcher who studies insects and who has famously been bitten and or stung by just about every kind of insect imaginable, you would describe the pain as rich, hearty, slightly crunchy, similar to getting your hand mashed in a revolving door. What does that even mean? Should it surprise me that I didn't understand that description? Not really, but what might surprise you is the fact that other people may not know what it means either, unless we ourselves have ever smashed our hand in a revolving door. Pain is incredibly strange that way, It's something we all experience deep down inside, but struggle to describe or understand without sounding like we're taking notes from an Emily Dixon poem. There may be some people out there who think they've gotten their pain vocabulary down pat, but even they would probably still struggle to describe a hornet sting without using abstract concepts like burning or stinging or other words that don't mean anything to anyone else unless they too have had a similar experience with burning or stinging. And even if they do, there are still other more complicated features of pain that seem to defy definition, like the fact that we can have physical pain and emotional pain and spiritual pain and describe them all using similar words even though they are clearly different things. Or the fact that no one else can feel our pain, but somehow they can understand it. Even when we do confusing communication things like using the word ache to describe both headache and heartache. Pain is what we say it is. 
So with that being said, how do we know what it is? And how do we keep from getting confused when we're trying to figure out ways to feel better? Someone should do a podcast about that. Someone did. And this is it. In this week's adventure, we explored pain, what we think it is, how it works and doesn't work, and how we try to get rid of it. Regardless of what words you use to describe pain, if you've ever had pain, you do have some idea of what it is. And that's in part because of the fact that humankind has been trying to figure out pain for ages. Back in the day, way back, people in many parts of the world thought of pain in terms of metaphors, like how in Japan, people used to say that they had a bear headache as opposed to a deer headache if the pain in their head was really strong. Or how in Europe, when people had a stomach ache, they used to say that rats were gnawing on their insides. Old-timey people also thought of pain in terms of purpose-driven explanations, which follows from the idea that everything, including pain, happens for a reason. One version of this model that was really widespread, for a really long time, is the idea that when the humans have pain, they have it because they're being tortured by demons, or witches, or because they're being punished by God. Another widespread version is the idea that God, gives the humans pain as a way to try to teach them a lesson. Eventually, humankind started to explore more scientific understandings of pain, and how to get rid of it. Sort of. In ancient Greece, for example, healers would tell people to sit in warm baths with electric eels because the shock from the eels was thought to cure arthritis in the feet. And we've probably all heard stories from the Middle Ages of people putting leeches on their skin for relief from pain and other ailments. The humans have also tried putting torpedo fish on their foreheads to relieve headaches and urinating on their skin to relieve the pain from jellyfish stings. The humans have been on the rise in one form or another for 65 million years, but they didn't start making major progress in dealing with their pain until around the 18th century, when they began trying to understand the physical systems of how pain works. Score points for the humans. Don't get too excited, yet. The process has not been perfect. As late as the 1890s, some of the humans' doctors still believed that certain kinds of pain, like cancer pain, was contagious. Yeah, well, Rome wasn't built in a day, or whatever. Around the 1700s, we started on a path that brought us to our current, growing understanding of how pain works. This includes learning more about the human nervous system and how the chemistry in plants and animals could be used to help us better treat our pain. Here's what we think we know so far. Pain is a pretty common thing, 
In fact, it's so common that by one estimate, we spend over $100 billion per year dealing with our pain. And it causes us to use about 50 million sick days from work each year. But even though pain hurts and costs us money, it actually plays an important role in helping us to keep healthy and safe. Most of the time when the humans feel physical pain, it's because their bodies are trying to warn them of danger or to keep them from moving around too much while an injury is trying to heal. This pain is often called adaptive pain because it's a healthy part of the body's attempts to protect itself. As you might imagine, this is all pretty complex. And there are several different ways to describe the process of normal pain. But any way you slice it, it usually always involves special fibers in our nervous system called nociceptor cells. You may remember us mentioning these cells a while back in episode 2, when we were talking about what happens to our taste buds when we eat spicy foods. Well, throughout the rest of our bodies, we've got lots of these highly specialized nociceptor cells which are grouped together based on the different kinds of pain they detect and how they react to the different types of pain they detect. Taken as a whole though, these cells basically work to sense something called noxious stimuli. Noxious stimuli sound fancy, but they're really just sensations we feel when something is touching us in a way that could cause injury unless we take action. If these noxious stimuli get intense enough to cause actual harm to our bodies, our nociceptor cells send alarm signals up through our spines and into our brains in the form of messages that we experience as nociceptive pain. Now that may not sound very impressive, but consider this. We have loads of these nociceptor cells living together around our bodies like little nociceptor neighborhoods. And even though the cells come in different types for detecting different kinds of threats, they're still often sensitive to the same kinds of sensations as their next door neighbors, even though their next door neighbors have already got things in their house covered. So, in order to keep from getting all riled up and sending constant false alarms that would leave us in non-stop pain, our nociceptor cells have a kind of agreement with the other cells in their neighborhood where no one neighbor will bother sending messages to the brain unless a bunch of other neighborhood cells agree that the threat is worth the attention. It sounds like a stuffy community co-op, but it keeps us from going nuts with needless, round-the-clock pain. Another cool thing about the different kinds of nociceptor cells is that they don't all send messages to the human's brains at the same speed. A delta fiber, nociceptor cells, for example, detect threats that cause sharp pain. Their messages travel to the brain much faster than other cells like C-delta, nociceptor cells, that detect pain from things like heat, or squashing. The A-delta fiber nociceptor cells, also quit hurting faster once the threat is gone and the injury is healed. 
even though we've only scratched the surface of the surface of the surface of things, it is clear that our system of nociceptor cells is really elegant. Since it's both diverse and specialized at the same time, it can effectively alert us to all kinds of nociceptive pain, whether it's pain from injuries in our bones or muscles, or inflammatory pain, like what we might feel after a surgery or during an infection, or mechanical compression pain, which is the pain we feel when something squishes or puts too much pressure on a part of our body. All of these pain signals give us information we can use to protect ourselves from harm and to slow down long enough to heal from injuries. You know, until the pain goes away or we beat it down with drugs. Did you forget to tell them that the pain signals from the nociceptor cells travel to different parts of the brain, including parts of the brain involved in emotions, like fear? Nope. But I'm glad you did. Because thinking about how pain messages get sent to our fear centers might help us understand how we experience pain both physically and emotionally. How do you like them, apples? For some of the humans, pain can drag on and on for a long enough period of time that sooner or later, it can actually cause other challenges like stress, anxiety, poor sleep, and a loss in their ability to function normally from day to day. Most people who have pesky pain that just won't go away say that their pain also affects their personal relationships. People who experience these kinds of challenges may be said to have another, other kind of pain called chronic or maladaptive pain. This is different from the typical adaptive pain we talked about earlier because maladaptive pain doesn't warn you about problems in the body. Maladaptive pain is a problem in itself. Maladaptive pain, or chronic pain, is a somewhat new idea because for a real long time, we thought pain was a kind of discomfort that only happened when the body was worrying about an injury or illness. As it turns out, when our systems for using pain as a warning go awry for no good reason, it essentially becomes the illness. In other words, for people with chronic pain, pain is not just a symptom of a bigger problem. Pain is a problem all by itself. In the U.S., more than 100 million of the humans suffer from chronic pain, and complaints about pain account for close to 12% of all prescriptions around the country and about 20% of all outpatient doctor visits. So how can something natural cause so much suffering anyway? Well, remember how we said that not all signals get the nociceptor neighborhood riled up enough to raise the alarm? And that the alarm messages get sent up the spine and into the brain? What we didn't tell you is that the spine 
and the brain have their own system for ignoring messages too. In fancy talk, this process of acknowledging or ignoring messages is called modulation. For people with chronic pain, parts of this modulation process break down or don't work properly, so their bodies end up reacting or overreacting to even the slightest touch. Or their pain response reacts correctly to a threat, but then doesn't calm down once the threat is gone. There is a hefty list of ways pain signaling can go haywire, and given the impact that living in pain can have on the humans, it is, perhaps, no surprise that they spend so much time and money trying to get out of pain. Yeah, and the whole thing is made more complicated by the fact that we still don't have stellar ways of measuring other people's pain. Pain is still what we say it is. But working to understand how pain tends to work in large groups of people has helped us to do a better job at trying to develop treatments and therapies. We've been working on better pain treatments since at least the 1800s, but it hasn't exactly been a smooth ride. As Nicholas Shakespeare described in his review of The Story of Pain, before anesthetics, doctors had to rely on alcohol, willow bark, and sympathy for pain relief. This was especially true during the early days of surgery. Eventually, drugs like ether and chloroform came along and the world of pain medicine continued to mature. But it was still lacking for many people, like women and people of color, because scientists and doctors' limited understanding of pain included a whole gang of silly beliefs, like the idea that babies and black people didn't feel pain, or that women who complained of pain were just being dramatic. As a quick side note, we do. We do feel pain. Also, the humans who didn't have enough money had a hard time getting pain treatments, too. Some of these problems are still a work in progress today, but we've at least developed some better options that can be safe and more affordable. These days, if you've got pain, and if it isn't too bad, there are a bunch of things you can grab at the local drugstore, and they typically work by triggering that modulation response we mentioned earlier. So they don't necessarily remove a threat or heal an injury to your body so much as they interfere with your nociceptor nerves sending pain messages up to your brain. One of the most popular versions of this is aspirin. And guess what it's made from? That's right, willow bark. Good old, old-timey willow bark or rather, a compound derived from willow bark. Please don't go ordering willow bark online just because they use it to make aspirin.
Other over-the-counter medicines like ibuprofen also help pain by keeping pain signals from traveling to the brain, but have fewer side effects than aspirin. The most powerful painkillers we have ever discovered are often called opioids. Judging by how they've been covered in the news recently, they might seem like new high-tech drugs that are making a big splash. While it's true that opioids have made a big splash, a really big splash, they actually aren't that new. Opioids come from opium, and opium comes from plants that were used to manage pain as early as ancient Egyptian times. Morphine and heroin, yes, heroin, were some of the most popular painkillers during the 1800s, and people used to be able to buy them over the counter in the form of tonics or soft drinks, like what we would recognize today as soda. Around 1900, though, we noticed that these medicines were pretty addictive. So in 1909, Congress passed legislation that prohibited their direct sale to the public. Way to be, Congress. Opioids are still part of a very big problem in healthcare right now, but that topic deserves its own adventure, so we will explore it more during a future episode. In the meantime, it is definitely worth mentioning that drugs are only part of our modern toolbox for dealing with pain. These days, lots of health professionals recommend that the other humans try lifestyle changes like exercise and relaxation techniques as part of a healthy pain management plan. Lots of research is being done to figure out which approaches seem to work best for the most people. When it comes to these non-drug approaches, some strategies may help some people more than others. And there really aren't any one-size-fits-all solutions, so people considering lifestyle changes to help with their pain may have to try different combinations of things before they achieve the best results. And I know this trial and error stuff sounds annoying and time consuming, but if you're listening to this in a time crunch and you want to be efficient with trying pain solutions, you're in luck because national researchers have looked into the most promising non-drug pain treatments and they put them into a neat summary that you can use to help guide your efforts if you want. So, without further ado, we give you <clears throat> data from randomized trials and meta-analyses that support the utility of psychosocial interventions, rehabilitative and physical medicine approaches, and integrative therapies. I think that what she meant to say is that there is data to support using things like cognitive behavioral therapy, exercise, physical therapy, heat and cold packs, a special machine called a TENS device, meditation, hypnosis, relaxation therapy, music therapy with imagery, and possibly acupuncture, to manage pain. There is also limited data that suggests touch therapies like massage or biofield therapies like Ray. He might be helpful, too. 
Whatever you decide to do, be safe, get medical advice if needed, and consider taking action sooner than later. Lots of us like to toughen up or wait it out when we have pain because we figure it will go away on its own. And sometimes it does, especially if the reason we have pain is something simple and easily fixed, like we pushed too hard at the gym or waited too late to get some sleep or we think we haven't done a two in a while because we've eaten too many gummy bears. In those cases, maybe we can wait it out and be no worse for the wear. But sometimes, if we let those pain signals go on long enough, our bodies get really rehearsed at maintaining the pain signals. And the more rehearsed our bodies get at maintaining the pain signals, the harder it can be to chase the pain down once we finally decide to do something about it. So unless you're a glutton for punishment, you may want to consider acting soon and acting often. And if you get bored while you're waiting for your pain to subside, you can hop onto Google and search for something called the Schmidt Pain Index. The Schmidt Pain Index is a pain scale created by that insect researcher we mentioned earlier. The scale is meant to help others understand the pain associated with bites and stings from various kinds of insects, and the colorful language it uses is well worth the time you'll spend looking for it on the internet. Well, that's all for now. Stay tuned, everybody. No stop. Wait, that's not all for now. We have one last thing to tell you, at the time of this recording, we're in the middle of Tripod Month, a time when the country is encouraged to try a podcast. According to an Edison research report, only 4 in 10 Americans have ever listened to a podcast and only 15% of the population reports listening to such shows weekly, even though nearly all of them are free. This month, please tell someone you like to try a podcast. Any podcast. Take their phone and help them subscribe to a show that they might like. Tell them to tell their friends, too. Everyone, try a podcast this month, then post about your experience using the hashtag tripod, that's T-R-Y-Pod. If you're looking for ideas, please tell the other humans to listen to the show so I don't have to go back to my day job. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Health Science for the rest of us. If you like what you heard, be a pal and spread the love by sharing this podcast with a friend. If you're not sure how or if your friend just needs some help, you can both get some quick tips from our fun YouTube tutorial. Just tap on the link in the show notes from this episode. To learn more about the show in general or to see some pretty hilarious health memes and videos, stop by our website at healthscienceforeveryone.com. We're also on Facebook in the group section and on Twitter under the name Health Science Podcast. That's all one word. For a limited time, Health Science for the rest of us listeners can save 20% on all NZT products at my online store by entering the promo code DARK42 Tower Beam Sunshine Strain. No, no, no. I told you we're not doing that. My apologies. 
www.irisspecialtystoreforthingshumansbyclairhealth.com. Iris! Sorry. I'm hitting the button now. Is that how my voice sounds? <laughs>